On November 18, 2015, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation hosted a seminar with Michael Dawson, the John D. MacArthur Distinguished Service Professor of Political Science and the College at the University of Chicago. The seminar was titled Race, Public Opinion, and the Fight Over Reparations in the Age of Obama. Walter Johnson, the Winthrop Professor of History at Harvard University, offered a response. This event was part of the Race in American Politics seminar series co-sponsored with the Wiener Center for Social Policy and the Hutchins Center for African and African American Research. Moderating the discussion was Leah wright Rigur, Assistant Professor of Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School and Chair of the seminar series. For more information, please visit ash.harvard.edu. All right, so thank you everyone and thank you for coming out on um, what is turning out to be a pretty momentous momentous day. If you're not aware, the, a lot of the students have, um, have staged, a, or staged a walkout earlier and walked over to Porter Square in solidarity with the campus protests that are going on around the country. So I think our topic actually fits nicely <laughs> within that. So um, another way of protesting, right? Um, so but thank you all for coming out this afternoon. Um, I want to welcome you to the Race in American Politics series, a multidisciplinary set of seminars and roundtable conversations um, where we feature academic, um, academics, practitioners, and journalistic perspectives from across the nation on the most pressing political and social issues related to race in the United States. Um, now, this series is co-sponsored uh, co by the Ash Center and by the Malcolm Wiener Center for Social Policy and also the Hutchins Center for African and African American Research. Now today, I have the pleasure of, of really welcoming um, what I like to call an all-star lineup. Um, <laughs> just, just very, it, it's very true. Um, uh, the, the first person that I want to introduce just briefly, I'm actually going to say his name and then come back to him, is uh, Michael C. Dawson, who's right here, um, who's joining us all the way from the Windy City of Chicago. Um, right next to me is Walter Johnson, who has generously offered to serve as a respondent today. Um, so I'm going to introduce Walter first. Uh, Walter Johnson is the Winthrop Professor of History and Professor of African and African American Studies at Harvard University. Uh, Dr. Johnson is the author of several books, including his most recent, River of Dark Dreams, Slavery and Imperialism in the Mississippi Valley. He has written very broadly, not only about slavery, but also um, about ideas as diverse as agency, global capitalism, and reparations. And his new project is really fascinating to me and so very necessary as it looks at the role of imperialism, racism, and capitalism as it pertains to St. Louis, uh, from Lewis and Clark to Michael Brown. So now I'd like to turn back to um, our featured speech speaker for the evening, um, Michael Dawson. Now, Michael Dawson is the John D. MacArthur Professor of Political Science in the college at the University of Chicago. He's also the founder and director of the University of Chicago's Center for the Study of Race, Politics, and Culture, and founding co-editor of, uh, co of the Du Bois Review. In 1988, he was the co-principal investigator of the 1988 National Black Election Study. And in 1993 and 94, he was principal investigator of the National Black Politics Study. Now, together with Lawrence Bobo in 2000 through 2004, he conducted a number of political public opinion studies on the racial divide in the United States. Or, in other words, the, it is now the richest data set on the issue that exists. 
Now, uh, Dr. Dawson is a giant in the field of black politics. He has authored a number of groundbreaking and critical books, journal articles, and opinion pieces, including the very important text Behind the Mule, Race and Class in African American Politics, and also Black Visions, The Roots of Contemporary African uh, American Ideologies, which is really a textbook on black political ideologies um, in contemporary America. His most recent works, uh, not in Our Lifetime, The Future of Black Politics, and uh, Blacks in and Out of the Left, Past, Present, and Future, provide the blueprint for understanding not only modern racism and inequality, but also the continuing significance of black politics and progressive movements. Now today, Dr. Dawson will share his work on reparations and public opinion. Uh, specifically, he will discuss both liberal and conservative objections to slavery repar reparations, present recent data on uh, present recent data on support for reparations, and examine the issue of reparations within the broader racial divide in America. Now, after Dr. Dawson finishes, uh, Dr. Johnson will offer a response. After which, I will uh, open it up to Q and A and moderate. Uh, what I hope will be a lively Q&A. So with that, I am going to turn it over to Michael Dawson. Uh, thank you for the kind introduction. It's good to be back. And as you can see, the talk is on the politics of support for reparations in the US during these times. Uh, when it comes to the study of race, uh, political science, not economics, is the dismal science. In that sense, uh, as a political science who studies race, I am part of the doom and gloom industry, as Abigail Thurstrom once claimed. Uh, my only defense is that I collect and analyze the data I present. I don't manufacture opinion, no matter how hard I try. <laughs> what I offer today, in part, is a political analysis for black reparations, <coughs> support for black reparations, um, analysis on the possibilities and challenges that not only a movement for reparations will face, but even a more general discussion of the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow in this country, as well as current racial conflicts and cleavages. But why reparations? After all, as Dinesh D'Souza, conservative commentator, announced, quote, if Obama's election mean any, means anything, it means we are now living in a pro-racist America, unquote. Uh, critical race theorist David Seal Goldberg is correct when he argues that for Americas, for the Americas, quote, racism has been declared, ended, race is an antique relic and the state of the post-racial taken contemporarily to pervade, unquote. He doesn't agree with that analysis, but he's stating that the contemporary, how much of the contemporary discourse has been framed, at least until the last year or so. Other hand, black and other protesters have firmly made three points. One is that we don't live in a post-racial society. Black lives have value and white supremacy still exists, according to uh, black activists and others, sufficient to, to lead to systemic, economic, political, and social subordination, whether you're talking about the criminal justice system or predatory practices by financial institutions and entrepreneurs that led to the theft of black and brown property and land. These points are not widely embraced in many communities. For example, a poll reported that a majority of white citizens in Missouri believe that the police officer Darren Wilson and more generally the Ferguson police have acted correctly, even though it's been shown, for example, that the police were preying on black communities to illegally extract extra revenue. Once again, as they did a generation ago, the protests that started in devastated black communities such as those of Ferguson and Baltimore 
has spread to the academy, not just the University of Missouri, but Yale, Georgetown, and other campuses, as, including, as I'm told today, Harvard. <laughs> Reparations is once again a worldwide issue, and a fraught one, as first Francois Hollande discovered in May of this year, as his comments that France would, quote, settle the debt that the French have with Haiti, unquote, were quickly retracted by his aides on a state visit, according to the Washington Post. In September, David Cameron walked into a reparations bus saw on a state visit to Jamaica, as everyone from Jamaica's Prime Minister, Porter Simpson Miller, to University of the West Indies Vice Chancellor, Sir Hilary Beckles, evoked reparations as a result of both Britons benefiting from slavery, the slave trade and colonialism, as well as Prime Minister Cameron's own family benefiting from the, their profitable involvement in slavery, including the reparations his family received as slave owners when slaves were freed on the island, according to the New York Times in September of this year. While discussions about reparations have been growing steadily since early in the decade among activi activists and academics, the issue reached national prominence in the U.S. during the early summer of 2015 with one of your recent guests, Tanahishi Coates' Atlantic article titled The Case for Reparation. His lengthy article summarizes a wide range of research that documents what he calls, quote, plunder in the past, plunder in the present, unquote, with respect to black economic, political, and social marginalization and deprivation. While controversial, it's clear that the issue is actively discussed in a variety of particularly black discourse communities and that racial cleavages and conflict are still deeply entrenched within the fabric of U.S. society. Currently, black students and allies at Georgetown are, are demanding reparations in the form of increased black hiring and response, black faculty hiring, in response to the university selling of nearly 3,000 slaves, in eight, 300 slaves, excuse me, in 1838, and opening a resident hall this fall named after the president who sold the slaves. Today, I place a U.S. discussion on reparations and apologies within the broader framework of a dialogue, dialogue on restorative justice and race. A racial dialogue centered on restorative justice, as you will see, would be extremely painful and contested. But one of the questions I'm going to come back to in the conclusion is what is the alternative? First, I'll put the project in the context of my ongoing work. Then I'll briefly discuss some of the objections to reparations on both the left and the right. Then I present recent data analysis on support for reparations and apologies. I place these analysis within the context of the massive overall racial divide in American public opinion. If we have time, I'll conclude with an explanation why I believe it's necessary to have a discussion at all levels within the U.S. about the desirability of a campaign focused on reparative justice with respect to race despite the monumental cleavages that exist and the certainty of massive resistance to even the consideration of such a campaign. So the two projects I'm currently working on, one is trying to finish a book of reflections on black politics in the 21st century that is the last of a three book series on black politics and racial cleavages. The first two were Not in Our Lifetime, which Leah mentioned, and the book version of the 2009 Du Bois lectures I delivered blacks in and out of the left. Reflection combines quantitative analysis of public opinion, data analysis of political economy and political theory. It considered questions such as racial differences in pessimism and optimism, 
lessons about black political literature that we can learn from Adam Sines and the Garvey movement and Garvey's political thought and that of the Black Panther Party using the work of theorists such as Machiavelli, Gramsci, and Alfie Scher. An analysis of transformation of the racial order in black politics due to neoliberalism, economic, and illogical dominance. The work from this talk on reparations is the last chapter that's being worked on for the book. Hopefully you will appear with some luck next year. Reflection, though, is a transitional work from my, tr my traditional work on race and politics to a large new project on race and capitalism in the United States. The Center for the Study of Race, Politics, and Culture at the University of Chicago is leading a partnership with the Weiser Institute at the University of Washington and the Social Science Research Council on the history side to form a working group on history, theory, and the contemporary contours of the intersection of race and capitalism. This talk and reflections as a whole is partially tied to that project as well. Let me start by reviewing some of the main objections to a campaign for black reparations. This review helps to frame the public opinion data that I'm going to present on current levels of support for reparations and apology for harms inflicted on blacks during slavery and Jim Crow. So <clears throat> according to several conservative analysts, reparations should be opposed for the following reasons. One theme is that blacks, um, as you can see by several of the commentators I quote on the screen, are lucky to be in America. Uh, second, um, as also um, Mr. Horvath and, and Mr. D'Souza as well have argued, reparations have already paid through uh, the welfare state and the blood of the Civil, of the civil War. Um, second, that reparations represents an attack on America um, and that it's a product of black nationalists and the left. Let me start with the last first. Um, I would say somewhat cavalierly, so what? Uh, as the work of many historians, such as Glenda Gilmore at Yale University has shown, for much of the first half of the, of the, of the 20th century, well into the 1950s, if not the 1960s, it was progressive forces and black nationalists who were leading force in the quest for racial justice for blacks and other people of color. But throughout black history, liberals also embraced many forms of reparative justice, including Dr. King, which a careful reading of his Marshall Washington speech makes clear. Second, in terms of, of a campaign on reparations being an attack on America, if you look comparatively, whether we're looking at Europe, um, looking at South America, looking um, at a number of other cases, reparative justice move movements usually have the opposite aim, not to bring people apart, but to bring people together, to heal and bring together a polity on a firmer, more honest, and just basis. And finally, in terms of whether reparations have been paid through the welfare and blood of the Civil War, through the welfare state and the, bl and the blood of the Civil War, <coughs> as several scholars such as Ira Cass, Nelson, Rob Lieberman, Mike Brown, and others have made very clear that indeed it's the welfare state itself, um, particularly as it was designed during the New Deal, that helped to deepen and, re and reproduce racial inequality in many different ways, whether we're talking about the housing, housing uh, system, the agricultural system administration, or several of the other programs of the New Deal. In some ways more interesting are the objection of scholars sympathetic to black claims for justice, some of whom are feminists and are or also on the left. Uh, Adolph Reed, for example, says there's no way to verify or identify who qualifies as a recipient. 
what type of reparations would we be talking about? That there's no unified black agenda. Um, <clears throat> and how can we guarantee accountability and representativeness? And that even the most progressive impulses, according to, to Reed in the reparation movement, are nostalgic, fans, nostalgic fantasy for a black power movement that's long been irrelevant. It's their best a misguided campaign to rectify false consciousness among blacks, a political dead end or worse, quote unquote. Perhaps Adolf is right about the political relevance and unachievability of a reparations campaign. But I'll address those two questions in the last section of my talk. What I find more surprising is to believe that a robust democratic movement that does not cater to the needs of the black middle class can't be built. Building a democratic movement that has high levels of internal contestation would be both necessary and desirable feature of a modern reparative justice movement. Historically, these movements have been built in the past, and it was often the black middle class, that, not the black working class, that opposed reparations. They were more concerned about maintaining respectability in the face of white hostility, and more concerned with access to mainstream society and economic opportunities, worthwhile endeavors in their own right, than in campaigns of economic redistribution that would mainly benefit the black poor. In other words, there is no necessary endpoint of a campaign for restorative justice. It could call for universal programs. It could call for no material programs whatsoever. But the argument would be made that, indeed, such a campaign could help build democracy and democratic discourse um, and start bringing together different groups of people in an honest talk about race. Gunnar makes similar arguments about what harm a movement for reparative justice could do in terms of further stigmatizing blacks, uh, portraying blacks as victims, although he does believe that such a conversation might be quite useful in trying to overcome the racial divide. I love the claims about the political implications of a, of a reparations campaign somewhat unaddressed. They'll make more sense after we see some of the public opinion data that I present. Uh, the data is actually is from the studies that were introduced um, at the beginning, starting with uh, 2000, 2004. It was uh, a project, joint project between first University of Chicago and Harvard University. Then 2005 through, and the 2008-2010 studies were the product of work being done at the University of Chicago. Most of these data, certainly all the later data, are publicly available. Um, and if people are interested, they can contact me to, figure, to find out how to access that data. First, let me start but with stating what might be, not be obvious, but at the time of greatest black optimism over the past 30 or 40 years, as long as I've been doing this, at a time when there were the smallest gaps between blacks and whites in public opinion, the gaps are still monumental. And sometimes the divide was between non-whites and whites, but other times it was between blacks and non-blacks. But what was almost always the case is that for the great majority of items, blacks and whites anchored the opposite ends of the opinion distribution. <coughs> These, the racial division in American public opinion transcends Racial question is extends to support for American military operations in the Middle East, 
the black-white divide, um, for example, the American intervention in Iraq was greater than the divide between Democrats and Republicans on, the, on that issue, or between men and women. Blacks for several decades have been the most anti-war population, and white Americans the most interventionist. Relatedly, a large majority of blacks disagree with the majority of whites and believe that anti-war protest was unpatriotic. It also extends to the valuation of political institutions such as the United Nations, questions such as the size and role of government, and evaluation of political figures ranging from Jesse Jackson to virtually all modern American presidents. It turns out that the divide is quite stark when it comes to blacks, whites, and, and Latino and Asians' evaluations of the prospects for black equality. As we can see, African-American pessimism was growing steadily between the 1990s and shortly after the Katrina disaster. I don't know why it went down in 2008. I haven't been able to figure that out as a political scientist. Uh, um, but what is perhaps not surprising but might be somewhat disturbing is that the Obama effect lasted less than six months after... Oh, I see some old friends in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> lasted uh, a very short period. And that, in fact, if you look at the, the data on Latino as well, um, Latino pessimism shot up also quite strongly in the period between 2009 and 2010. I'm going to skip over the statistical analysis of the predictors of, black pe of pessimism about the prospects for black equality, but the reason I showed you these uh, numbers and the numbers in the next slide on whether racism is, not, is or is not a major problem is not to just show you the racial divide, but because these are two of the best predictors of support for an apology on Jim Crow and slavery among all groups. So I used to say, at least if you could get two drinks into me, that I knew all three white people who supported reparations. Um, the level of hostility to reparations among white Americans is uniform and intense. There is more variation among African Americans, but there's still uh, quite a bit of strength for the support of reparations among black Americans, whether we're talking about uh, reparations for Jim Crow or for slavery. When, we first did this, when Larry Bob and I first did this study in 2000, people asked the reasonable question is, Talking about reparations is too broad. What if you talk about specific victims of various programs? Um, doesn't matter, or not, doesn't matter much. So even um, asking about people who were directly harmed by the destruction of their communities in the early 20th century, um, a type of reparations that has historical precedent across several different continents, um, does not garner large levels of support among white Americans. There's also fairly strong resistance. In fact, this would be considered a massive resistance if you didn't see the numbers on reparations itself to an apology for slavery and mixed support among Asians and Latinos in the United States. We did not ask the question about reparations because my close friend and colleague of several decades, Kathy Cohen, who led the study said, why are we asking a question where there's no variation. And, <laughs> and I didn't have a good answer to that. So I, well, I like to keep the time series going. was not, a, not considered a adequate. Um, 
response. So what we did was kept asking the question about an apology because there's more variation among all groups. And therefore, you can l learn more through multivariate analysis. You can't learn anything through multivariate analysis if there's no variation. So I'll start with what are the best predictors of support for an apologies among African Americans. I'm going really fast because when I do this in my hotel room, I always fit within the time period and then it doesn't work out when I do it in front of an audience. A uh, low-income black de Democrat who's grounded in black institutions and therefore has a more racialized view of the world are, the, are among the strongest supporters among African Americans of an apology for slavery or Jim Crow. His indirect effects include exposure to black media, also leads to greater support for an apology, as well to one's belief that their fate is linked to that of the racial group. Although a racialized worldview, both directly and indirectly, um, helped to predict support for reparations among African Americans. Democratic white women with high education are among the most supportive groups among white Americans, but low-income whites from the West would also be likely to support an apology. But given the large number of white Americans who are optimistic, not pessimistic, about the prospects for black equality, the relatively fewer percent, the lower percentages of Democrats and of low-income whites, it's not surprising that there is a far lower level of support for an apology than, than among blacks. The patterns for Asian Americans is different. Highly educated Asians who belong to ethnic associations and who are also Democrats are much more likely to support an apology for slavery and Jim Crow. Latinos who are affected, by very, are affected mostly by structural factors as well as being embedded in civil society. Less fortunate Latinos are more likely to support an apology than their more privileged cousins. By the way, we, also, we ran these equations not just across each ethnic group, but also in terms of one mass sample, but the racial um, variables overwhelmed everything else. One of the things that running the, separately by across different, within each ethnic group shows that the pattern of support, what matters in terms of predicting support differs across racial and ethnic groups, which suggests that we should not be running these equations all at the same time in the first place, which is not, which unfortunately is still fairly common practice in political science and public opinion studies. So what are some of the political implications of the massive racial cleavages? So let me, but isn't it just class or party? I mean, for good reasons, both theoretical and intuitive, we are often skeptical about claims of racial differences. It's extremely plausible that racial differences are, ma are masking underlying class or partisan differences, and this claim is in part testable using simulations. My co-author, uh, Allison Harris, who's a Chicago doctoral student, currently on fellowship at Penn, has estimated a series of simulation models that test whether by substituting the media values of blacks for whites and others trying to, on economic and partisan grounds, making blacks look like they were uh, white Americans, does not close the gap. In other words, it's not income, it's not party identification that is driving the racial difference in support for rep reparations or ideology. It's all, or apologies, excuse me. It's also to, it's support for Obama actually closes the gap some, but even that doesn't close the, the gap fully. There's something that we're not capturing in public opinion data, and we have some suspicions that we can't test in this data, that is driving the racial differences among not just blacks and whites, but also Asians and Latinos as well. So it's not just class, it's not just partisanship, it's something about the racial 
character of American society that is producing most of the gap between different racial and ethnic groups. The same thing when you look at support for Obama, the gap is not closed by substituting income or partisanship. So it's not just that, that blacks are more democratic or blacks are poorer, it's something else that we believe is more racialized about public opinion formation that our standard variables are not capturing. So there's a, hu there's a huge divide and a little support among white Americans even for an apology. Even raising the question of black reparations reduces support for reparative justice for other communities of color. In a survey experiment conducted as part of the original study in 2000, we varied the question order between asking about apologies and reparations for first blacks and then for Japanese Americans. And when we asked the question about blacks first, support among whites for an apology and reparations for Americans of Japanese descent was depressed to even lower levels. We know there will be resistance from not just pu the public, but we also know there will be bipartisan opposition from elected officials. In 2001, the State Department resisted any language in the meetings that led up to the World Conference Against Racism in Durban, South Africa, that labeled slavery or the slave trade a crime or a crime against humanity. During the 2000 presidential election, Democratic Senator John Kerry labeled the issue of reparations as divisive. According to Charles Henry, a political scientist at Berkeley, Dem Democratic Congressman Tony Hall reported receiving more hate mail than for any other issue when he introduced an apology resolution in 1997. The events of the past weeks, though, why consider reparations given all the massive uh, resistance to the ideal in some sectors of American society? The events of the past weeks and months should remind us that we still have a massive problem when it comes to race, whether it's the continuing festering of black community police relations, the open abuse that black students at the University of Missouri have taken and continue to take, the relatively low-level urban revolts that are beginning to erupt once again, or the, relatively, or the rapidly spreading organizing on campuses we are once again seeing. The problem will not go away due to either good intentions or a policy of igno ignoring and ignorance. The lowest cost, perhaps, if painful mechanism we have, is to start a frank discussion about race, past, present, and future, coupled to a discussion of what type of country within which we want to, to live. What would a reparative justice movement entail in the U.S.? That's a matter of debate, but it probably includes some of the following if we go by international standards. Announcement of the wrongs done and continuing harms, Repair of those wrongs, which a movement could decide was best accomplished through either universal programs or could move in another direction. Ultimately, building a just society for all is the goal, as a quote from Catherine Liu suggests. As MIT political scientist Melissa Noble suggests, a historical commission might lay the basis for us to move forward. The evidence from, the com from comparative examples, however, is mixed. It's often been argued that a campaign for reparative justice will not repair but will divide the working class, progressives, the left, or more generally inflame already dangerous racial divisions. A century ago, the same argument was used to oppose tanking up lynching and other forms of black oppression of the 19th and early 20th century. I would suggest that we already are divided, extremely divided. I think over a century of evidence would suggest that not discussing racial divides, as well as the historical legacy, would lead to continuing festering of the racial cleavages that, that afflict us today. In my book, Blacks in and Out of the Left, I took, looked to the past in order to think about moving forward. There I de 
I define pragmatic utopianism as follows. We need a pragmatic utopianism, one that starts where we are but imagines where we want to be. Pragmatic utopianism is not new to black radicalism. Martin Luther King's work and that of the civil rights movement more generally was based on the utopian imagining of a much different America, one that they were repeatedly told was impossible to obtain, combined with a hard-headed political realism that generated the strategy and tactics necessary to achieve their goals. Pragmatic utopianism, I assert, is needed to counter the neoliberal dystopia within which we live today. I'll say more about what rebuilding the black counterpublic or rebuilding black movements uh, and supporting the youth who are once again leading democratic movements for justice and equality during question and answering, answer period. Let me leave you with a parting thought from Dr. King. I believe that talking about the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow in the context of continued racial disparities and disadvantage is necessary if insufficient step on the road to finally building a democratic, fully just, and egalitarian society in the United States. Thank you. Okay, so now I'm gonna turn it over to uh, Dr. Walter Johnson, who I think, sure, why not? <laughs> it's a pleasure to be in Michael Dawson's intellectual company. Partly because I, I think that, that the, the trend of Professor Dawson's thought is so radical. And I want to try what? and emphasize that <laughs> as, I, as I thought. I mean, it begins with the notion of a post-racial America. Uh, with Obama's post-racial America, obviously a, a dream, a fantasy, and a fantasy that defined race in a certain kind of way, or racism in a certain kind of way. The, you know, the, the election of Obama, in a way, represented the culmination of a certain kind of foreshortened version of the black freedom struggle. And I want to recognize that as both the most amazing moment in the history of the United States and utterly unequal to any kind of notion of black freedom or equality. I want to do that in the spirit of Marx's essay on the Jewish question, where Marx talks about the notion of citizenship as presenting a sort of achievement of equality that is not identical to genuine union emancipation. And it seems to me what, what the question of reparations brings up is a notion of human emancipation in excess of that foreshortened notion of freedom. As I try to think through the categories that help me understand um, the history of white supremacy and racism at this moment, I want to distinguish heuristically between three different sorts of, of, of racism. One would be attitudinal racism, so balefully evident in the recent history of uh, the recent experience of black students at the University of Missouri. Okay. One would be a more kind of systemic racism. And as an example of systemic racism, I would take the Department of Justice's report on the Ferguson Police Department. What the Department of Justice finds within the Ferguson the Police Department 
is not simply the attitudinal racism of the court clerk who's sending around nasty emails, but a larger um, indifference, an aggressive indifference to African American people and a continual and consequential unfairness, unevenness in the way that they are approached by the police. What the Department of Justice report on the Ferguson Police Department does not do is to think in deeply historical or structural terms about the character of racial injustice in the United States. And it seems to me that that is what reparations thinking asks us to do. Reparation thinking, in a way, asks us to think about the historical and structural predicates of whiteness as much as of blackness. Asks us to think about where is it that, and I mean, in the way that, that um, Hillary Beckles did to David Cameron when David Cameron visited the West Indies, asks us to investigate structural racism and white privilege. The, I think, um, extraordinary piece by Ta-Nehisi Coates in The Atlantic, which traces the history of federal subsidy of white privilege through the 20th century and relates that to history, I think is one of the best examples that we have of this. The work of Ira Katznelson when affirmative action was white, the work of George Lipsitz, the possessive investment in whiteness, are other examples of this. Um, and, and it's my increasing, I mean, I'm, I'm, I actually, you know, having been um, produced by that world, it's taken me a while to be able to learn to view it from the outside, but I've been increasingly um, just astounded, really, as I've learned more and more about the 20th century and more and more about the ways that the federal government, through the Federal Housing Agency, through the GI Bill, through the Social Security Administration, subsidized the creation and separation of the white middle class from the 1930s, really, to, to the present day, but um, most aggressively from the 1930s to the 1970s, so that, so that, so that um, white privilege and um, what, 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 what the St. Louis activist call, uh, Ivory Perry called um, black removal with white approval was a fundamental characteristic of the DNA of um, the New Deal, the Great Society, and as Professor Dawson pointed out, of, of later um, democratic as well as, as Republican politics. So it seems to me that what reparations thinking allows for is the critique of structural racism as well as systemic and attitudinal racism. And that seems to me to be an extraordinary important way of thinking about inequality in the United States, inequality that has been so structured into the fabric of our cities and our lives that it can now actually function independently of attitudinal racism, even though in places like Columbia, Missouri, my hometown, it clearly does not. I want to then just, given that foundation, make 
three observations about the presentation today. The first thing is that reparation seems to me to be an extraordinarily exciting and challenging historical narrative because what reparations thinking actually does is it, is it challenges the basic narrative of American history. It challenges the idea that American history is something that moved from slavery to freedom and it challenges the notion that everything is actually gradually getting better. It challenges a liberal notion of American history as a lineal prog linear progress to, to freedom. Now, it seems to me that that challenge is perhaps not unrelated to um, what, what Professor Dawson talked about as, as a, a, a sort of an unknown, a kind of an indefinable surfacing in the data. It does not strike me as odd that African-American people would think of themselves as subjects differently than white people would. It does not strike me as odd that white people would understand themselves to be isolated in time from their past and therefore not responsible to the past, and that African-American people would understand their own biographical life as being deeply embedded in a, in a longer history. And so I think that one of the questions that, you know, one of the ways that we might think about this as we go further is about the relationship of, of racial thinking to notions of subjectivity and responsibility. One thing that I would like to hear more about or think collectively more about is how it is we might think about a set of reparations claims or an analysis of reparations politics that was gendered in its character. The wrongs of enslavement, and I think it is fair to say the wrongs of the sorts of structural racism all the way up to the policing of the Ferguson Police Department are wrongs that are always already gendered in character. I mean, this is extremely obvious in the case of slavery where differential as, um, differential sorts of vulnerability around sexuality, but also around reproductive alienation were constitutive of the regime. And so what would it mean to try to imagine a politics of reparations that was gendered in its um, claims of, of wrong and its claims of restoration? The final thing that I'd, I'd like to think about just together is about to whom is the claim for reparations uh, to be addressed. And it seemed to me that um, most of the implication in the paper was around a form of address that addresses the federal government as the body responsible for American history and providing reparations. And so you know, the, the Black Manifesto was um, in 1968, which was a reparations claim, was addressed to the white churches and synagogues. So one, one need not necessarily imagine the form of address and reparations thought to be to the federal government. What is the proxy that is going to be used for this history of white supremacy and structural advantage? Obviously, the students at Georgetown have found a proxy in their university. Different people have at various times tried to make claims against specific corporations which have a life 
in wealth that stretches back to slavery and sort of confounds the, um, the biographical pilotism with which white people face reparations claims. Well, I didn't have slaves, so it's not my responsibility. Well, corporations have a different kind of lifespan, and so they've been a productive site. And that, again, seems to me to be interesting both for how we think about the history of race and structural racism in the United States, but also how we think about uh, restoration and uh, justice and the sorts of um, political sodality that, that Professor Dawson talked about at the, at the end of the paper. Thank you. Thank you. So what I'll do now is, uh, Michael, if you want to respond briefly, we can have some time to respond, and then we'll open it up to Q&A. I'll keep, I'll keep it uh, very brief, um, partly because I don't know the answers to some of these. Um, first, in terms of one of the points I make in the, in the larger paper, and one of the, I think, very positive aspects of the, of the current organizing among young African Americans is the insistence that a movement must be anti-patriarchal and it must be anti-homophobic. Um, and that, in fact, there needs to be non-patriarchal queer leadership um, of these movements. And that's part of the disagreement I have with someone like Adolf Reed, not in the sense that he's arguing for a gendered, uh, I mean, patriarchal, uh, heteronormative movement, but that I think the type, when I made this similar presentation in Chicago, black nationalists challenged me from the beginning, um, saying that these are people who are, you know, like Black Lives Matter, the Black Youth Project 100, they're not really black people. And what they mean, <laughs> <laughs> what they mean by that is they weren't patriarchal uh, straight men um, that had nationalist uh, goals. But that, one, we're seeing people make those claims now, and two, any type of successful democratic small d uh, movement for restorative justice, whether it was reparations or something else, would certainly have to fight that fight, both within the African-American community and more generally within um, U.S. civil society and U.S. politics. But that is a necessary and not sufficient condition for a democratic uh, movement moving forward, whether it's on restorative justice or something else uh, that has to deal with black justice. Second is I've thought a lot and I've gone back and forth about targets for um, a movement for restorative justice. And I think corporations and other economic entities on one hand and the state have some desirable features. What you often hear is, you know, my parents came, were, came, uh, came from Eastern Europe, were fleeing pogroms themselves and had nothing to do with slavery. And I can't say that my ancestors didn't have anything to do with slavery, but they probably didn't own slaves. That I'm pretty sure about. But the point is, if you make the claim against the state, we're, as citizens, we're all responsible. Um, so my taxes would go pay for somebody who's affluent and... Would, would go for support if that's the way, that's, if that was the demand of the movement, would also be part of a movement for, to, for restorative justice. Or, um, Skip Gates said he, when I gave this talk in 2003, he wanted a Mercedes, he probably won't get one. Um, but Skip would have to pay, which I find some justice in. 
the point is if you make the domains man of the state, all of us as citizens are in the enterprise together. I think that's something that is both would be politically contested, of course, but would also mean the burden is not who was your, who were your ancestor, but who as we as American citizens, what is our duty to each other? Something that we've gotten away from discussing in many different contexts. Corporations, I think, are, are interesting target for the exact reason you pointed out in your, in, your, in your comments. There are corporations that made massive profits off of providing insurance for slave traders, as, as an example. Um, Georgetown University retired its debt when it, when it sold to 272 slaves in 1838. So there are a number of entities that still exist that benefited directly from the slave trade, slavery, and the proceeds thereof. Um, and I don't see why, in principle, we can't discuss some of those being targeted today for. So I don't think there's necessarily one target, just like I don't think there's necessarily one remedy. Uh, if you were going to tell me that we're, you know, we're going to impose Swedish social democracy in the United States tomorrow, that might go a long way to meeting all the problems with the racial inequality in the United States, at least on the material side. But I don't see how we get to some type of social democratic solution without dealing with, without dealing with racial conflict, racial cleavages, and the type of massively different worldviews that we see across, across racial groups and ethnic groups in the United States. Okay, so we're going to open it up for questions. I just ask that um, when I call on you that you speak into the microphone. So let's start over here. Two very short questions. Uh, I thought the, uh, hmm, I think the financial reparations to Japanese Americans for World War II in, uh, internment were in the, around the early 80s. Uh, um, one, so my first question is, was there, so, so some reparations took place there. I, I, was there a formal apology? My second question is, uh, if you could be more concrete uh, about how you conceptualize reparations, are there to be payments to all families with a history of slavery or would, for example, uh, black Americans who were never enslaved in the United States because of the lateness of the immigration of their parents? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Let me take the second question first. I actually don't advocate for any form of rever reparations. Um, what I argue is that to the degree that we're going to have a, uh, what I do argue for is a campaign for restorative uh, justice with respect to race, and I would have, I believe that, that whatever demands come out of that, like I said, universal demands, in other words, types of social programs that all Americans would benefit could be an outcome of debate within a movement for restorative justice, just as uh, there's been some calls for setting up community trusts. Um, we did ask the question on, I can't remember, I think it was 2004, the 2004 study, about different forms of reparations. And there's a lot of divisions among, within black Americans about whether it should take the form of payments to families. Um, there seems to be much more support for, for community development, human capital uh, enrichment type, of, type of, of support. But I think that whatever form of reparations came about, that has to be the product of democratic 
debate and deliberation and political contestation. So I don't particularly advocate one form or another. There's been a lot of different forms put on the table. Yes, there was. I'm, I'm, I would have to check again. I used to know about whether there was an official apology or not, but there was small levels of reparations paid to the families of Japanese Americans who were interned. Um, the survey that I'm referring to occurred in 2000, and what that actually denotes that even after reparations were paid, there was still opposition among majority of white Americans to an apology or reparations to Japanese Americans, even though it had already happened. So this was, post, it was after the fact um, in terms of the question itself. You mentioned increasing pessimism about uh, equality uh, among uh, Afro-Americans, and you mentioned increasing about racial equality. But I'm wondering how much of this increasing pessimism in recent decades could be a result of increasing general economic inequality, which affects people across races, but which of course affects the perception of the inequality facing black families too. Now, uh, there's been a white underclass forming in the past few decades to join the black underclass that we've heard about for decades before. We have in rural areas a opiate epidemic among white rural people mostly. That seems to be similar to the crack epidemic that of decades ago. And uh, so I'm wondering whether, as I understood, having participated in the civil rights movement of the 1960s, from I mean, Dr. King from the March for Jobs and Freedom of 63 to the Poor People's Campaign in spring of 1968, you might interpret, I think, any mentions that anything that he said in the direction of reparations as something that was going to serve all poor Americans, and that that's the kind of restorative justice that he was looking toward, similarly to what you said is the possibility at the end in your reply. So I'm wondering why you would think that that goal, which was Dr. King's goal, and his arguably attainable goal, saying there's injustice in this country this injustice is especially evident in the history of peoples of African descent who were enslaved. Why that goal, why pushing toward reparations and having a discourse about reparations that may scare off poor white people is a better way to get there than just saying there's injustice here, slavery is, an, is a conspicuous example of it, and we want there, and that that should be used to undermine the discourse of liberal equality that, we do, that we've achieved it already, and to benefit all people who are getting a bad break now. Okay, uh, thank you. There's a lot of pieces to that. Um, let me start with Dr. King, though. Um, Dr. King was certainly moving toward a more anti-capitalist analysis at the end of his life. It's very clear in where do we go from here and some of the interviews he gave in March of 68, uh, literally weeks before he was assassinated in, in April, in early April. Um, but Dr. King, if, uh, in his writings, uh, pursued a dual strategy, much like the Black Liberation Movement of the late 1960s and 1970s did in general. 
he clearly wanted to see an expansion of the U.S. social net. He clearly was talking about bringing, building an alliance between poor and, and uh, marginalized people across racial groups. And he was also calling for quotas, racial quotas in, in hiring. So he, provoked, he, he was calling for, in terms of policy, both universal programs and racially targeted programs at the same time. Because he believed for, uh, as did Du Bois, as did the black Marxists in the Detroit Revolutionary Union Movement, the League of Revolutionary Black Workers, and many other groups, or the Black Panther Party, that on one hand you could push for and needed to push for economic justice and against economic inequality against a system that was inherently unfair toward poor people on one hand, but also realizing that there was a specific racial nature to the oppression of black people and brown people as well, and that you need to make specific demands. Uh, that's part of the reason, I, I, well, that's one reason. Secondly, I think part of the work I'm doing now, and, but I mean many, many others have done, have done you know, we can talk about Cedric Robinson, uh, who wrote the book Black Marxism. Um, I can talk about the work of people like uh, uh, James and Grace Lee Boggs as well in, in writing about black inequality is that there also has to be a recognition that social democracy has been always held back in this country from the early 20th century and from the times of the Socialist Party because of racism among white workers as well. So that there's always been a push against inclusion across racial lines that's not just come from people who are affluent or people in corporate headquarters, but also people who are similarly situated, at least on paper, um, economically. I think that any successful movement um, that is going to build toward a more egalitarian and racially just and economically just society has to deal both with economic inequality. We've seen too much of the civil rights movement deal with only racial justice on dealing with the um, basic unfairness, uh, economic unfairness that affects the uh, majority of Americans. And we've seen too many movements for economic justice ignore race. We can make the same analysis. This was also the critique of the feminist movement by women of color in like the Kambahi Women Collective that led to for the formation of black feminist collectives in the 1970s. So you have to deal with um, along all of these fronts simultaneously and realize there have to be, there will be demands uh, that are particular to the particular form of subordination while at the same time trying to build across uh, groups. I mean, part of the argument of the, uh, if I remember the Black Panther Party, one of the Black Panther's many slogans correctly is nationalism forms socialism in, in goals. And I think that's a basic ref reflection of not necessarily how things, how the Panther leadership at the time wanted the country to be, but how the country was actually structured, having to deal with both racial, they didn't, they didn't care about, I mean, some of the women clearly did. But the, the Panther leadership did not care about uh, gender hierarchy. Well, they cared about gender hierarchy. They supported it. <laughs> um, but they certainly wanted to build at least a class and race-built movement, but had to try to deal with both the resistance to class, well, to use their terminology, class struggle with, among blacks, and resistance to racial justice among white workers. And I still don't think we've moved that far where and that, therefore, a movement for restorative racial justice can bring up questions about how do we all move forward given the racial oppression that continues to this day. Um, Professor Dawson, you had promised that you would say a little bit more about, I think you called it pragmatic utopia, 
Nism in your, you know, answers to the question and answer period, and I was caught by that phrase and wondered if you would expand a little bit more on how you, what that vision is. Part of what I've been, um, you know, and many of us have been distressed by, is the narrowing of discourse uh, within the United States and the West in general, and for my case, um, with, with among African American politics. So. When I was a student at Stanford, um, the Black Student Union contained Republicans, members of the Nation of Islam, Black Panther Party members, Black feminists, and there was just an extraordinary range of, uh, of debate and, and perspectives. Um, today, you walk into most black organizations and the range of debate has narrowed uh, considerably. But part of what that narrowing represents is a lack of imagination about what the future can be. Uh, and important, and this is not just representative of, of, of black politics, but I think of American politics and maybe politics throughout the world to an unfortunate degree. So going back and reading King, reading Malcolm X, reading Du Bois, reading um, Ida B. Wells, and many others, Part of the historical record is they were always told this cannot be done. It's part of the go slow. <laughs> You're going too fast. Um, and the same thing if you do study of the women's movement is you might be right, but these things can't happen now. I mean, the, we're not ready for it. So p the utopian part is rejection of the idea of utopian being something that gets in the way of progressive movement, but a call for radical imaginings of thinking. Um, the novelist Walter Mosley, in one of his really interesting uh, nonfiction essays, said, get together with a group of people and write down 10 things. Each of you write down 10 things of what, you, what the world you want to live in is what would be like. That's the utopian part of the project. And the pragmatic part of the project is looking at King, looking at any one of a number of groups from the, well, by American standards, far left to the, to the moderate right among African Americans, is thinking about how do we get from here to B? And that's where the pragmatic part comes in. We, can, we want to imagine this radically different egalitarian version of society. Getting there means we have to be realist to some degree, although I hate to quote <coughs> one of my uh, colleagues, John Mearsheimer, but <laughs> or the Kennedy School, his co-conspirator, his, his, uh, co Stephen Walt. Um, but being realistic about, not necessarily realistic in terms of limiting, but being realist in terms of what are the type of tactics and strategy that would get us to where we want to be. Hello, Professor Dawson, and hello, Professor Johnson. Thank you both for, thank you, Professor Dawson, for a masterful presentation, and Professor Johnson for a masterful response. I really enjoyed your presentation and appreciated the respondent as well. And I had a, a, a kind of a multifaceted question, uh, and it kind of goes back to the question of reparations and how we think about it in a contemporary American context, mm -hmm. particularly with regards to really dealing with the vestiges of white supremacy and white privilege that Professor Johnson alluded to in his remarks. And I'm wondering particularly about uh, the contemporary context. And a couple last night, actually, we had a meeting with a number of students in the Kennedy School, and they were talking about kind of the challenges and the vestiges in contemporary American society, but even within Harvard or the uh, Yale, our sister institution, a number of other peer institutions, and just some of the challenges with the lack of diversity, uh, particularly on the faculty 
as well as the staff and the student body. And so when you look at kind of systematic uh, hiring and, and ways, processes that take place at many of our higher education institutions, it's, it's not unheard of that you have disparity, particularly with regards to race, African Americans in particular, uh, but with women and other underrepresented groups as well. And so I'm, I'm wondering about the provocative point that you made about race being a cancer uh, that eats at the very fabric of the nation and how Dr. King uh, during that time really grappled with the issue and the challenges of race. And my sense from many of the students and from several of the faculty and staff who couldn't be there was a two-part. One, that the issue of race and racism is still something that we're grappling with and we haven't been able to address it. People are afraid and it presents a threat to people who um, are in positions of power and who've benefited from white privilege and white supremacy. And so I'm wondering if there's a way that you can kind of help us think through ways that we can kind of get past the vestiges of, of what we've inherited, particularly within higher education institutions, where we're really at a place now of kind of trying to figure out how do we make sense of what's going on outside of the walls and the very real concerns that many students have uh, inside of the walls. How do they make sense of, of the reality that we're faced with? So when I entered Stanford as a 16-year-old, two years before I entered Stanford, there were six black students out of 12,000. Uh, then October 4th, 1968, and, and uh, occurred. Dr. King was assassinated. 120-plus U.S. cities started burning. Um, and within two years, there were several hundred black students. Stanford made a strategic mistake, um, something that, in terms of diversity, we don't often think of. Uh, most of my colleagues, um, to be truthful, I went to a private school in Chicago. Uh, the, the laboratory school, which some of you may have heard of, is sort of infamous in all sorts of bad ways. But most of the students I went, I went to, Stan black students I went to Stanford with were from the LA public schools, the Oakland public schools, uh, New York public schools. Uh, my wife was, um, uh, went to the Hawaiian public schools. And they realized that, and um, from the, some of the public schools in deep in the Delta, Mississippi, and they changed their admissions policy within three years to only admit black students from suburban schools. And they, yeah, yeah, uh, they said, oh, there's, it, there was a guy that was very similar to Archie Epps, who some of you may have remember, uh, who was at this university for a number of years. Um, but they said, we don't want students to come here who want to change Stanford. We want students who want to come here to learn from Stanford. And we thought we were doing both. Um, but <coughs> One of the ways we forget about diversity is the intersectionality of the early black feminists of the 1970s who were concerned about gender, class, race, and sexuality. And not just the two out of the four or, one, or you know, three out of the four, but we're concerned about all of them. So one way when we think about diversity is also think about diversity in the student body among um, uh, people of color, and it's also, t it, I mean, one of the things that also, like this comes from Cass Nelson and other people work, uh, one of the great redistributive programs that was wonderful is the working class children of ethnic immigrants from Europe were able to go to universities in New York for free. That's the type of diversity which is both multiracial and multi-class gendered um, <coughs> um, that we need to think about. 
not just in the student body, which is what happened uh, for extraordinary brief period on some of the college campuses in the United States, um, places like University of Michigan, like Stanford, um, to some degree Harvard even, but also in terms of staff and faculty as well. Uh, we're pulling from a very narrow group of people, both along all these different dimensions. So that's one thing I think we have to think about. And one of the things I, I skipped over as I was running out of time at the end is that there's always been tensions in black communities going back to the early 20th and probably earlier, but my, my research goes back to the early 20th century between the black middle class and black poor. Um, and any type of, pro this is where I think Reed, who should know better because he pays attention to history usually, historically reparations movements have been the movements of black poor people. They have not been the, a middle class movement. Um, and for a restorative justice movement, we would, it would have to pay attention to those sectors of the United, American population that are doing the worst and connect that to globally to other marginalized communities throughout the world. Um, one of the more horrific but not surprising pieces of research that's come out in the last few months was by the recent Nobel Prize winner in economics, uh, Angus Deaton which shows that we see declining um, life expectancy among working class and middle class white people. And one of the commentaries about it said that what this reminds us of, because the deaths are due to suicide, due to liver disease, uh, due to the type of uh, drug addiction in, in rural areas, it reminded uh, some public health officials of the decline in uh, the rise in mortality rates among Russians after the fall of communism, when the safety net was, 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 was withdrawn. So whatever restorative justice movement, if there is one that is built, would have to pay attention to all the marginalized populations in the U.S. across racial groups. That's not to deny rule for race and racial organizing, but it would have to be, if to be truly progressive, make those type of alliances and make those type of universal claims as well. And that includes on college campuses, to get back to your point. So I actually want to ask a, a quick follow-up question to um, Michael, which is that do you think that that kind of restorative justice program, one that, that moves across race and class, is something that you know, Americans of all races would be more likely to get behind? Not initially. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, one of the, I, I don't know, I think we were surprised of findings when we did the experiment, um, question wording experiment, uh, several years ago at this point, was that any mention of justice for black people lowers um, s support among many whites for justice for other groups as well. Um, the framing of people like Glenn Beck and Rush Limbaugh of Obamacare as reparations, I think shows that um, dismantling of the American social safety net, which overwhelmingly went to poor white Americans, was dismantled partly through the work of images like the welfare queen, undeserving American, urban, and all these other racially coded words. So what I think we can initially ex expect is a racial backlash. No matter how universal, I mean, Bill Wilson called for universal programs 20, 25 years ago to try to get away from racial stigmatization and in the name of justice when you want to help poor people in this country. 
But what we found is that any claim on behalf of poor people gets racialized um, very, very quickly. So that's one of the reasons I think we can have a campaign that is aimed at helping poor people without taking on race. Because even when we look at union busting campaigns in the 19th century, early 20th century, all what happened to the populist movement in the, in the, in the 1890s? It was uh, the bloody flag was waved, and the civil war was evoked, and the, and the you know like organizations like um, the Knights of Labor uh, started falling apart, particularly in the South, but not only in the South. Oh, I knew this was coming. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful to see you here. It's Good like to see you. Old days. <laughs> Very old days. You're getting older too. <laughs> the nationalist boundary maintaining. <laughs> so I, I've, I'm, I'm really, uh, I'm really provoked by this. I've seen different iterations of this talk, and um, I think the last comment you just said is is probably the most persuasive argument for it. Right. So that. We all react, and when we see the data, I mean, you can't help but react. Is everyone opposes this um, in part because uh, it's framed so clearly as a restorative justice program for racial inequity. But anything that is about redistribution gets framed that way, and so, in some sense, it's it's it might be more effective to take it on. Um, and so, I I am sort of persuaded by that in a way that I haven't been in the past, and I'm also provoked by your claim about the imagination, uh, the sort of pragmatic utopianism, the imagination work. And I want to put sort of two provocative things on the table and then see how you would respond. So one is that I would, I would argue that part of the success of ta Coates' article, which is the highest selling issue of the Atlantic ever, is in part because he doesn't actually make a case for reparations. Mm. Uh, he doesn't say what it'll look like. He doesn't really make a moral or normative argument for why you should do it. He just lays out a series of injustices that are really awful uh, that happen to black people. But you could concede all of those things and not think reparations is the appropriate response, as Adolph Reed or Glenn Lowry certainly would. Um, so I, 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 I want to hold the peg that. And then the other thing is that that probably the most influential popular culture represent, representation of reparations was from the Dave Chappelle show uh, about 10 or so years ago. And he had a very well-known skit where black people receive reparations and, you know, hijinks ensue, right? And so people are, you know, flossing in front of the camera and doing these kind of things that, that um, they're funny, but I actually think they do a kind of work of delegitimizing the, the project, right? And people immediately go to, well, how would you give them checks? And part of the, part of the question of are you giving individuals checks is because people are already doing imagination work of imagining black people, you know, wasting the checks. Uh, and so, so I was curious that, that given this, given these two things, um, you know, I would like us to do imagination work. Like, what, what exactly are you thinking? I mean, what, would, your, would your sense be that the move in economics toward rehabilitating the idea of direct cash payouts is, is enough of a kind of door opening to actually just defend vehemently the idea that, yeah, people should just get cash payouts and be able to make all sorts of decisions about how to improve their lives. Uh, and we should just defend that principle and respect the judgment of black people. Mm -hmm. uh, 
Or do you think that given somebody like Walter's research that you've got these horrible housing policies and that what you might want to do is try to somehow cripple the existing capitalist housing market, right? And they massively expand public housing or grants for housing uh, that, would, that would circumvent the existing housing market. Or this kind of question about the, the, the colleges and universities where you have some sort of, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton's been using this language of the new New Deal when talking about racial injustice. And as you say, yeah, we're going to redo the GI Bill uh, for any African-American kid in a low SES neighborhood uh, who manages to graduate from high school, we're going to, like, pay for them to go to college or something like that. You know, I just want to kind of put, like, here's some, like, crazy imagination things that you made me think about while I'm sitting right here that it could possibly look like, and I'd be curious as to what your response to those were, given the other kinds of things that are, like, blocking people's imagination now. Mm -hmm. So um, let me try to deal briefly with the first one. In some ways, I, I, sort of, I feel like quotes because I don't, what I call for, I try to be careful about saying, and for reasons that I actually think are principled for a restorative justice movement, by not calling for reparations. Reparations is a potential demand that restorative justice movement could produce, but it could also produce other types of demands, if, or none at all. You know, it, could be a, it could end up being a dialogue um, that helps move us forward. In terms of thinking about reparations, um, yeah, I mean, Dave Chappelle and Skip and the Mercedes, right, are the same type of amusing, but not so amusing. Um, uh, I think you were there when, when Skip did that. <laughs> um, he got a Tesla, though. He did? <laughs> so, but he had a Mercedes before. <laughs> so I guess he traded it in. Anyway, um, I, I'm not going to go there. Um, I already did. <laughs> so, but the, um, when I think, try to imagine, I guess there's probably illogical reasons that I, I prefer more collective versions, uh, whether they're racially targeted or not. And partly one of the things I imagine are groups of black people talking about what type of programs we want to do, or poor people in general. How do we want to use this set of funds for our community? Do we want to rebuild, do we want to build some type of green tech enterprise? Do we want to reinvest in schools? So I, 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 I guess I have, I mean, it's a matter for debate, but I have a taste for, oh, I've got to stop doing that. Um, I have a taste for solutions that call for even more, that help build democratic institutions, that help build collective economic cooperation of various types, as opposed to the sort of you as individualist thing of let's have another check. Um, so. When, when you look at the demands made in the Black Manifesto which are very, very serious, thought-through demands about building black civil society and black engineering technical economic capacity, the sort of caricature around 40 acres and a Lexus is, 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 seems mean-spirited because there's a level of earnest, pragmatic, imagination and those demands that is and and so if you if you think you know the FHA distributed 120 billion dollars in loan guarantees to a population I mean they, they I think only two percent of those loan guarantees are made available to non-white people well what about take that and make make that in present value dollars available to to 
non-white people, you know, not on a 98 to 2% basis for home loan guarantees. What about, what about look at, at disparity in life outcomes in relationship to health and, and somehow monetize that as these people do all the time in, in insurance litigation and take that kind of, of money and, and use it to replace disappearing trauma centers in black neighborhoods. I mean, you know, it, it seems to me like it, it, the, 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 the extraordinary thing about the way that we can now map structural inequality because of all the tools we have, it, it, it almost it produces a, you know, a Bas relief map of what you might, what you might want to do beyond distribute, you know, money on an individual basis. Two really quick points. One is just a historical note on the people who did, who put together the Black Manifesto, is they came out of, I think, primarily two groups of activists. One is the SNCC activists who were part of Mississippi Summer, who were working in the South, and the other were out of the League of Revolutionary Black Workers, Detroit Auto Workers and UPS drivers, etc. These were people who had a lot of investment in thinking through um, w in both urban and rural settings the history of black oppression and what might be needed to, to help remedy it in a way that furthered human flourishing and not just necessarily made temporary band-aids. Um, the second thing is that more recently, I think it was the American Association for African American Historians, it came up with a different type. In fact, they're doing more work on it. They came out with a call about two years ago. It came out about the time of the University of Virginia Conference and Reparations. Um, which was, let's look at the banks that were found guilty of predatory, lend, uh, predatory practice, illegal predatory practices against black and brown communities. The judgment against that was several hundred million dollars, none of which went to those communities where that, that had been preyed on. So their demand was very simple, just, you know, let's transfer that into some type of community development fund in which there could then be debate about how it gets used and invested. So in some ways what I'm saying is some form, I mean, going back to the black uh, manifesto days or going more recently back to the call of the, Ameri the Association of African American Historians, is going to some type of investment strategy that is tied to democratic accountability and responsibility. Okay, so now we are officially out of time. <laughs> um, I'd just like to thank everyone for coming out. I would really like to thank the Ash Center for hosting this event. And we'd like to invite all of you to kind of partake in our, our little reception out there and maybe come up to Walter and Michael and ask them more questions since we'll be around for a little bit more time. So thank you.